Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, we welcome another author in our series every Friday that we're on, uh, Margo Morrell, author of Shackleton's Way, Leadership Lessons from the Great Antarctic Explorer. Margo, welcome, and I'm super excited to have you because I love that story about Shackleton. I've watched documentaries about him, and to have you on and read that book, boy, I'll tell you, you cannot put that down, and this guy was... (laughs) This guy was really amazing. So I'm so glad you brought him to life in this book and and gave us leadership lessons. So why did you write this book and why this particular title? Well, I came across a story by chance in 1984 at the Boston Public Library. And I'd started out my career as a um, researcher and librarian. So I had the skills and the tool set to to be able to pursue this. I was just so intrigued by this story of basically doing the impossible that I just kept pursuing it. So first I collected and read every book that I could get on the topic. Then by the early nineties, I started uh, spending my vacation time going to to London to pursue, um, to seek out primary source documents. 1995, I went to the Antarctic for the first time, and that led to transcribing a number of diaries from the expedition. And bizarrely, that all came to the attention of the Wall Street Journal. And by the time the article appeared, the next morning by nine o'clock, I was getting calls from editors saying, do you want to do a book on the subject? And my response was, well, how do you write a book? And so it took about a year, but I figured it out. And uh And the next, you know, here we are. And why this particular title? Uh, Well, the funny thing was, but the the morning that uh, article appeared, about six people called me saying, well, you're uh, writing a book called The Shackleton Way. And um, (laughs) so it doesn't say that in the article, Uh but but here we are. And and one day, uh, you know, fast forward a year or so, we were, Stephanie and I had a contract with Viking and I was standing at my uh, kitchen sink doing some dishes. And and this image from the uh, endurance expedition came up into my mind of uh, the wake of the endurance. And I thought, you know, it shouldn't be the Shackleton's way. It should be Shackleton's way, which is much more uh, about going through life and, and making changes and, and wending your way through. Yeah, I, I I love it. And it's a great story. And I guess the time the time you went to Antarctica wasn't quite like Shackleton experienced, right? It certainly was not. I Though the first time I went was through... Uh, New Zealand and Australia. And the point was to get to the Ross Sea, which is the lowest point, the farthest south you can get to in Antarctica. And that's where the historic, the polar expeditions in the early 19th century left from. So I got to see Scott's hut and I got to see Shackleton's hut and got a sense of what the situation was like for them, what life was like for them in in the Antarctic. 
so there's no there was no Hilton there for them or a Four Seasons for them to stop by, right? <laughs> I always joke about that. And no Ritz on the uh, Antarctic Plateau. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I wouldn't be doing that trip if I if it was me. I would I'd have to wait till somebody like Shackleton actually did it. So glad he did. So what are the three things you would like readers to walk away with from this book? Well, I think to me, the story is uh, a metaphor for the challenges that every single one of us face in life. And I, I think that the to me, the, the ultimate uh, takeaway from this story is you can be, have, or do absolutely anything you want in life. It's just a matter of saying to yourself, am I willing to pay that price? And and that's that's the sum total of this story. But what I took, what I was interested in was, you know, there were wonderful books that were written about Shackleton. The first book I picked up was uh, uh, Frank Worsley's book. Frank Worsley was the captain on the Endurance, and um, he wrote a wonderful book called uh, Shackleton's Boat Journey. And then Alfred Lansing came along in the 1950s and wrote his masterpiece, Endurance. And then uh, Roland Hunford wrote a fantastic 800-page biography of Shackleton in the 1980s. But what I wanted to know was how on earth did he manage to do this? How did he manage to get this group through this incredible ordeal? And that's what I set out to um, to figure out. And what it comes down to is um, four, he uses four um, um, strategies, and those are leading by example. He never expected anyone to do anything that he wasn't willing to, to do himself, communicating effectively, keeping up morale, and maintaining a positive attitude. And that is essentially how he got through this incredible ordeal and led his team through it. Well, we're going to dive into some of those topics, but let's talk a little bit about Shackleton because he was really a rock star in his day. I mean, he was a world famous uh, guy. Um, was his father or any family members uh, seagoing people? No, his uh, father was actually a physician. He was he was born in Ireland, and his father decided to become a physician, um, and they mo ended up moving to London. So he was interestingly enough, he's always considered an outsider. He always is. He signs every um, letter he ever writes to his wife Mickey, which is a slang term for Irish. And so he always saw himself very much as an outsider, which is kind of interesting. But all of these polar expedition leaders were um, were rock stars. You know, everybody knew their name. It was like it was the equivalent of being a um, uh, a NASA NASA astronaut in the 1960s, or you know, today one of the leader technology leaders. You know, we all know the names. Uh, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs. It basically was the equivalent of that. Wow. And it was super impressive. Uh, and again, anybody who hasn't read her book, got to get this book. Um, what was he like and what were his interests? Well, the um, everybody who ever knew him in various walks of life would re refer to him as the life of the party. He was very gregarious, very outgoing. He was a lot of fun. He, um, on the first expedition he went on with uh, Captain Scott, he actually made the suggestion that they write a magazine to keep everyone entertained and involved during the course of the winter months. You know, the, it's pitch dark for 24 hours a day for 
four months down in the Antarctic. So this was just a way for keep everyone involved, everyone doing a project. When he leads his first expedition on board the Nimrod, he actually brings a printing press. He saw he sent a couple of the guys to learn how to print, and they actually um, print a book while they're in the Antarctic um, during those cold boring winter months. And those books are the most valuable books of the polar. I mean, they go for, you know, $60,000 or so today. So no internet, no Netflix, no Amazon Prime, nothing. Nothing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But but they do have a printing press and they do have uh, uh, typewriters. (laughs) You got to, and you got to use your imagination. That's what it looks like. Uh, I, I, think like many assume the crew are sailors and a few executive officers. What were the specialists on a ship like Shackleton? Because I was really amazed when I read the book. Well, I think if you think of the Big Bang Theory, you know, the television show, the big, those are, those are the people he had on board with him. I mean, these are not a, they're not the specialists on board. He had a biologist, he had a meteorologist, he had a geologist, he had a uh, a physics um, expert. So they're all um, there. And and the other thing you have to keep in mind about these, he didn't expect to have this group with him the entire time. Some of the people were going to go back to South Georgia for the winter. Some of the people were going to stay in a cabin in the Antarctic for the winter, but he wasn't expecting to have 28 people with him the entire time. But they, you know, he has a photographer with him, um, a, a motor expert. So he has a lot of people with varied um, ex- forms of expertise. Wow. Uh, and we have a question here. Did he establish a hierarchy among the group? You talk about communicating effectively. Was there a pecking order? You know, yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that if if the group had a problem, if the crew had a problem, like the sailors, um, they went first to Cheatham, and then they went to uh, Wild, and then they went to Shackleton. So there definitely was a very established, just like there would be in the military, very much an established order. But the other thing about it was everyone pitched in. One of the interesting things. Um, that interviewers asked the survivors in the 1950s was, you know, were was there a hierarchy of this group? And and everyone pitched in. Everyone had to do everything. In fact, um, you know, two of the uh, people who had, you know, primary input. What's how to put it? Um, they gone to Cambridge. I mean, there's a physicist. A uh, they thought they were above doing any of the hard work aboard the ship. And the first thing they so they decide to sleep in in the mornings. And Wild goes and puts a hose through the window. And the message is clear: they are not. <laughs> nobody is sleeping in. <laughs> Everybody is up and contributing, and everyone has to do everything. You wrote, you wrote on here uh, in the book that he doesn't did not put up with any kind of prima donna, and he was not a prima donna himself. Absolutely not. Yeah, but when you say that, the first thing that comes to mind is the morning after they abandon the ship, he gets up. He probably hasn't slept all night, but he gets up and makes tea for the crew and goes around with a couple of the other people and delivers tea to, hot hot tea to every cabin. 
Um, so uh, let's talk about and, and go back a little bit. Tell us about the two expeditions to the Antarctic on the Nimrod and Endurance and why his fascination with the Antarctic. Yeah, he um, leaves school at 16, kind of like um, Winston Churchill. He wasn't much of a student, but he but interestingly enough, after he leaves school, he proceeds to educate himself to the point where he could recite pages and pages of poetry, which I always say it's like the equivalent for, uh, for boomers of being able to uh, recite the Beatles lyrics. <laughs> right. you, know, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So uh, so he, he's not. He's not a slacker at all. But anyway, he decides he wants to, he doesn't want to spend his life in the office. He wants to be out and about. And on the first expedition, uh, the first uh, ship that he's on, they actually, it goes around the world and they get to Cape Horn. And he, as he says, writes in one of his books, I felt strongly drawn to the mysterious South. And that's where he finds himself. And that's, um, that's he, he keeps being, he keeps promising his wife, like, this is it, I'm not going back again, but he keeps going back. That's that's what pulls his heart forward. Yeah, I, it, it, again, these are impressive stories uh, that you tell. What was his leadership style? Or are there any famous leaders you see today that resemble him? You know, I think the best example of uh, Shackleton-style leadership was when Reagan got, when President Reagan, um, during the assassination attempt. First of all, he insists on walking into the uh, hospital on his own, even though he collapses the minute he gets through the door. But he's leading by example. He wants the um, country to see that he's okay. He knows that there are cameras around. Secondly. He communicates effectively throughout the um, um, that afternoon. He he jokes about it. Uh, you know, he jokes to his wife using an old line from a boxer, "Honey, I forgot to duck." And and he yeah. says to the um, doctors, "I hope you're all Republicans." <laughs> and he maintains a positive attitude through the whole thing. So. And he's keeping up morale. It's it, everything he does through that throughout that incredible ordeal. The uh, bullet was only five inches from five inches, no, an inch from his heart. I mean, he he was. It, it was a very serious situation, and he manages to joke his way through it. And that is Shackleton in a nutshell. Uh, Ronald, I hope I'm saying this, is it Ronald uh, Emmonson was the first to the South Pole. He and Shackleton paired in notoriety to Scott, one of our listeners puts. What is the connection between fame and leadership? Um, well, it's Ronald Amundsen, who was a Norwegian explorer. Uh, interestingly enough, Roald Amundsen had exactly the same situation that um, that Shackleton found himself on board the Endurance. But in 1898, he was trapped on a ship um, in Antarctica in the pack ice, and they actually managed to get through. But that was an incredibly um, um, it was the complete opposite in that one of the men on the expedition writes um, the darkness right near. Um, um, like midwinter's day, they call it. The darkness grows daily a little deeper and the night soaks hourly a little more color from our blood. Most of us have, uh, have grown tired and gray, though few of us are over 30. There's an absence of jest and cheer and hope. Meanwhile, 
17 years later, aboard the ex, um, endurance ex, aboard the endurance, Frank Hurley's writing in his diary, party time. We're having, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Macklin is writing poetical verses and I am doing the same. Um, McElroy is creating a décolleté, meaning a low-cut dancing rig, and uh, Uncle Hussey is being beset by applicants to um, accompaniments on his banjo. So the contrast is so stark between Shackleton-style leadership and, and this other leader aboard the Belgica. Interesting. How did he sell his vision? Because he raised the equivalent of like $10 million for his ventures, or at least actually even one, right? Just the endurance he raised, if I read that correctly in your book. How did he sell his vision to people? Well, he he was people were always impressed by him. There was a um, you know, a steel maker who um great businessman who commented about his qualities. Um, he got to know, as he got to know people, they were impressed by him. And he he had a great way of uh, connecting with people that he used on um, the endurance and, and all his expeditions. And, and one of them commented, it's, you know, these personal conversations that were the glue that held this group together. And and that was, you know, they all commented on how he would just strike up a conversation. And, and your question is making me think that, you know, he probably did that with the um, people who could be his donors. That, you know, it's just a matter of getting to know people and connecting with them so that they would, um, um, you know, he could go to them and say, you know, would you be interested in financing this expedition? What was this like? Were they like angel investors? Did they expect to get a return on investment? Uh, some of them did, and some of them didn't. So, and and he was. This is interesting because he wasn't particularly good at um, nailing down the details. You know, that wasn't who he was. He was a big picture guy, right? Yep. He, you know, he could have used a lawyer. Like, <laughs> <laughs> put this in writing. So, because one of his major donors on endurance. Um, had died in the interim. And of course, you know, to to him, it was a gift. Um, the uh, you know, uh, donation to endurance, whereas to the uh, executors and heirs, it had been a loan. So it, it was, a, it, he would have done well to have nailed down those details. Wow. Uh, so before you talk about the tragedy and ultimate success of endurance, uh, can you talk about he created products like I, I I remember reading in the book that he would even tell other explorers and, and we'll talk about that later. But he would even tell other explorers, I could give you good advice, but I can also tell you about the uh, way to pack, what kinds of things to take. And he even had some, I guess, kind of inventions that he created as he adjusted to the climate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, he. He didn't get along particularly well with Scott, and yet he was perfectly willing to offer Scott some excellent advice that Scott would have done well to take um, when Scott was planning the um, his discovery exp um, expedition. So he was very generous in offering uh, advice to other explorers, and and um, 
he's amazing in the way he was always forward thinking. One of the big perils of uh, polar expeditions was uh, scurvy. Nobody on Shackleton's expeditions ever got scurvy because he was so forward thinking in terms of the food that they ate. And um, he, he, um, for the endurance expedition, he actually went to Germany to seek out um, somebody who was, uh, again, very much forward thinking in how they were designing food. So he had these quote unquote nut bars that were part of their diet and and got them through, in fact, their ordeal. So he was very forward thinking. So let's talk a little bit more about that. what his men endured, such as the cold, the long uh, polar nights their diet. I mean, we, we can barely survive COVID here and we've got all the amenities, uh, but he and his people managed to keep their sanity and health uh, through unbelievable um, you know, uh, uh, barriers and so forth that he had to go through. I mean, it was incredible. So talk about, about what they were go- actually going through, how cold it was, everything that they were dealing with. Well, on the polar plateau, it gets to be minus 40 degrees. Um, and But they typically dealt with temperatures that were more like minus 10 or because um, they never got quite that far south. But he but the, the big problem is, you know, the boredom and the um, uh, um, and the, you know, the darkness of being pitched black for um, four months of the year. So he insists that everybody get together and spend the evenings together in the um, um, on the ship. And Ordley's, who is signs on to be the motor expert, but is an utter failure in that particular role, actually writes in his diary um, in the uh, in this, right around New Year's of 1914, uh, we're supposed to have a corroboree, meaning a sing-along tonight. It didn't come off, thank heavens, I hate those things. A year and a half later, he's living under two overturned lifeboats on a deserted island. Nobody's gonna find them there. Shackleton has left eight weeks earlier. He's overdue to come back and rescue them. And Ordley's writes in his diary, we had a grand concert tonight of 24 <laughs> turns. And so ends one of the happiest days of my life. <laughs> it just shows the um, the com- camaraderie that Shackleton built in his crew that everybody had to um, had to contribute and some a song, a, a poem or something on these celebrations that they had. And that was how he kept kept the crew's spirits up. But you, you and you write in the book, though, he was very selective of the crew members. And that probably tells us why. What, what, what was the profile, the kind of crew members he was looking for, along with all the other people that accompanied him? Well, one of the things he always said was that loyalty trumped everything in his um, perspective. Uh, but he was really looking for people who could get along. He um, James, who was a physicist on board, famously uh, uh, told about his um, interview with Shackleton, and Shackleton says to him, "Can you sing?" <laughs> and and uh-huh. 
And James, who, you know, top flight physicist from Cambridge University, like, can I sing? And what Shackleton is looking for is, like, can you get along with people? And that's what he's really looking for. Can you get along? And and that's, of course, what he's emphasizing with, uh, you know, you get kind of su- uh, the subtext of, uh, of the Ordley's comment, like, I want you to you know, participate. I want you to uh, contribute to and to being a whole group, not breaking off into small small groups. Hence, Sheldon probably wouldn't have made it as one of his star physicists, right? Uh, <laughs> on there. Well, the thing is, he did have star. You know, he, that's exactly the thing. And um, when he when they when they lose the endurance, he actually takes the three most difficult personalities, the Sheldon, who is Reginald James, into his own tent. And the uh, the three guys um, who are involved have no idea what's going on, but everyone else on the expedition knows exactly what Shackleton has done. And through taking the Sheldons into his tent, he they, again, it's like, holy cow, wow, that is so amazing that he would do that. And, and this was not a hard sell to get people to want to come to the Antarctic with him. How many applicants did he have? There were thousands of applicants um, when he uh, first announced the endurance expedition in late 1913. And But it was, interestingly enough, um, Dr. Macklin told the story in the 1950s of how he had managed to go. Um, he, he'd always, he'd al- you know, it was a time when, Polar expeditions were a big deal. And, and Macklin, like a lot of the others, like Shackleton himself, probably grew up reading these stories of these polar expeditions. So Macklin, the minute the expedition is announced, Macklin writes a letter to uh, uh, Shackleton and he doesn't hear anything. So finally, he decides, like, I'm going up to London myself. I'm going to you know, present myself at the expedition and see what that happens. So he walks into four new Burlington street and there's Shackleton coming down, running down the stairs as Macklin is going up and, and, and Mac and Shackleton says, you know, Macklin says to him, like, here's why I'm here. And so on. Like, great, go, go upstairs, get to know the guys. Um, I'll be back in the afternoon. So that's exactly what Macklin does. They go out, he, he gets to know the other guys. They go out to lunch together and chat and so on. Macklin, by the way, is a physician at this point, and he's probably uh, 23 or 24 at the time. And uh, he, and when Shackleton comes back, he calls Wilde into the office for a few minutes and basically, obviously, is saying to him, you know, what's he like? You know, you think he'd be an asset? Can you get along with people? And that's um, and that and then he calls Mac and very few converse, very brief conversation like you're hired. Yeah, I, I so it's was... that that determination that is really the term, determination and the uh, initiative to go down to London that really impressed the Shackleton. Like you're you're hired. And. Uh, essentially, almost everyone, he was like one of the older guys that was 35 when he was leading uh, the endurance. And everybody was in their 20s, except for one guy who I think was 50. And he selected him for a specific reason. Why? Who was that? And why was it? I think you might be talking about the carpenter, McNeish, who yeah. Uh, it, yeah. he's he's one of the older people. Shackleton, actually, at the time of the endurance, is 40 years old. Okay. He, he and Wild and 
and worse, like Frank Wilde is the second in command on on his on Nimrod, basically on endurance, and then later on quest too. Um, and Frank Worsley are all around 40 years old. A, a bunch of them are in their 20s and you know, a few in their 30s or so. Um, yeah, but why did he hire McNeish? McNeish was amazing. He uh, he never measured anything. He could you know look at whatever he needed and eyeball it precisely. And, and he he was one of these grumpy um, people who was always looking for a, would get drunk on Saturday nights and go looking for a fight, you know, on a ship that uh, <laughs> he was going to have to deal with everyone, um, you know, the, for the going forward. It wasn't like he was going anywhere. And yet he, um, he, he made a, a major contribution in, um, in decking the James Caird and in raising the sides of the Caird. So but he was also the, like a calming influence as well, right? Not, not McNeish. Um, Wild was, Wild was very much a calming influence and could, uh, he was, um, you know, people were always praising Wild for the addition that he was to the expedition. And that's amazing because he manages to keep everybody every day on the, um, well, he's left in charge, of course, on uh, Elephant Island when Shackleton goes off to South Georgia to seek help. And Frank, after about two weeks, when they can start to think that Shackleton might be coming back for them, every morning, um, Wild says to the group, lash up and stow, boys, the boss may come today. So, again, it's, you know, very much a like everything's even, everything's um even tempered. Uh, at one point, two of the men get involved in an argument and Shackle and Wilde comes along and says, what's going on here, boys? And and um, and they say, well, um, we're arguing about women's hats. <laughs> <laughs> of all absurd things. And and Wilde, like, really? <laughs> and um, makes them shake hands and like that's the end of it. And to think that he manages to get this group, you know, for two for four months almost through this being on with very little food, very little, very few ways to resupply their food supply. And yet they are having a remarkably good time to the point where right towards the end before Shackleton comes back, a couple of them are um, building a snow maiden of the, as as they put it, of the well-endowed by nature type. (laughs) Again, you're like, who who would have thought it possible that a group of people could get along so well and have so much fun? And what was the diet that they ate? Because you said they didn't get scurvy. So what was the diet? Shackleton insisted that they all eat fresh meat, which was penguins and seals, um, primarily. That's that's what's available in the Antarctic. And that's what keeps them from getting scurvy and, and keeps them. And and the uh, he brings an incredibly um, incredibly varied diet with them. You know, like jugged hair is one of the things they have on them on board with them. Um, uh, that always strikes me as you know amazing. Um, so they have he feeds them as best as possible. But when he uh, when they first bring the seal on board to um, have seal stew, he. Um, the um, sailors 
push back on that. And he makes it very um, like, well, the this is for the officers, the officer deck. So so they actually come to the sailors actually come to that to him and say, well, if the officers are having it, essentially, we want it to. Smart psychology. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, really smart psychology. And um, we have a question here from a Naval Academy grad. Uh, when Shackleton was stuck in the ice with his expedition and drifting with the ice, he could and did establish his latitude by stellar observations. Uh, however, is that an error before radio navigation systems, uh, Loran Omega, and way before GPS? How did he determine what longitude was at? How do you determine longitude? Um, well, they had um, um, Worsley. Worsley was incredible at uh, taking a sun sight with a, uh, um, now the word's going out of my mind. It's not a compass. It's a, um, somebody else knows the, the word. It's just going out of my mind. But anyway, they would get a sunshot and he could very, they had the books with them and he could go through the books. A, and, a sextanet? And Is it called sextanet? S-E-X-T-A-N-T? <laughs> Uh, sextant. Yes. Scott <laughs> Witt, thank you so much. And what what was the diet that they ate when they were going across the ice? Because when you talked about what happened, I guess, with the Nimrod and they were eating ponies or something, right? Am I got did I get that right? Did I get the right trip? Um, a Nimrod expedition. Yeah. yeah. Shackleton took ponies with him, which, you know, it seems bizarre to us. But in fact, it was a more efficient way to travel. And these ponies were Russian ponies and they were adapted to being in these this weather. And it was much um, bizarrely, it was a much more efficient way to uh, to travel than with dogs. I, I The reason for that is out of my head at the moment but if you read the book it's it's in there um so they but shackleton they had you know again he'd very efficiently packed um the food supplies so they but they on um on nimrod they actually lost one of the ponies which that was the problem with the ponies that they were um, not as efficient in going over the ice as the dogs were. So they lost a pony with some of the the food supplies down at crevasse. And, and the polar plateau is actually um, two miles deep. So these these crevasses were unbelievably deep. They just, you know, something was gone if you um, if you fell down it. So um, so they really had to eke out their food supply. And and that's one of the most amazing. So they get within 90 miles of the pole. And uh, and at that point, they turn back. But Wilde says if Shackleton had only had himself to think about, he actually would have kept going. And then they turn back there. You know, it's the equivalent of slogging from Boston, Massachusetts to like Charlotte, North Carolina, Um carrying all of your food supplies with you and everything else that you need. Um, and um, so the, on the way back, they are extremely low. They have actually laid depots so that they don't have to take everything with them. But they, um, at one point, Shackleton, and I think this gives you an idea of exactly who Shackleton was, Wild was very sick. Um, and one morning, Shackleton takes his one biscuit um, and forces it on Wild. 
And Wilde says, you know, writes 30 years later, the that gesture, I'll never forget about it. Um, it was just so incredibly generous. Um, and, and the way he talks about Shacklin is just so incredibly impressive. But I think that that moment on that expedition shows you exactly who Shackleton was. Yeah, so Shackleton even there. said, if, if you don't eat this biscuit, then I'll bury it in the snow. Right. And yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. What were the ingredients to his success? You you wrote about this. What what were the ingredients to him? Well, I mentioned earlier, it was these four attributes of leading by example, communicating effectively, keeping up morale, and maintaining a positive attitude. It's those four uh, strategies that really are the secret to Shackleton's success in getting this group through this incredible ordeal. Yeah. Um, how did he manage to keep his men thinking positively? Because he had worked with some guys who weren't positive thinkers like him. Uh, and 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 they called him boss. They didn't call him captain, which I thought was kind of interesting, too. Well, he wasn't the captain. Frank Worsley was the captain of the endurance. Um, Shackleton wasn't um he actually bizarrely didn't regard himself as much of a seaman. In fact, when he uh when they take the um um, the James cared from Elephant Island to South Georgia. If being a seaman had been the criteria, he wouldn't have been on the on the boat. It was the fact that he was really the leader, which was completely different situation. Um, yeah. Understood. Just like a captain, I guess, on a crew, you know, somebody owns their own ship and has a crew and a captain with it. You, you wrote about the officers supporting them. What were they like and how did Shackleton lead that he got such a great, uh, got such great support? How did he interact with his own officers to make them feel like they were, you know, almost equals in a sense? Well, it really was from the moment they lost the, uh, from the moment they were trapped in the ice, it becomes essentially a shore station so that the, the, um, the hierarchy completely collapsed, but but I think what you're asking for in a bigger sense is, for example, when they actually had to abandon the endurance, what he does is stand very visibly on the deck, as somebody said, with a serious but unconcerned attitude. And as everyone leaves, he, he just kind of pats people on the back or says to them, hey, don't forget your diary, be sure to take your banjo. To everyone who goes by, he says something, and they have this, again, sort of strong personal connection with Shackleton. And then the next, as they leave, after they leave the ship, he actually calls them all together um, and gives what one calls a, you know, there's nothing um, said about it. It's not elaborate at all, but he very um, you know, says like, this is how we're going to get through it. And then a couple of weeks later, he happens to notice that the endurance is actually sinking. And, and as, um, and so again, he kind of calls everyone together, like, Hey, look, the ship is actually sinking. And one of them says it must've been an incredibly, um, terrible moment for him. And yet when he turns around and sees the worried looks on the face of his men, he says to them, so now we'll go home. <laughs> and in that one short sentence, he gives them a goal and a positive outcome. And 
nobody panics. Um, everybody like, yeah, now we'll go home. I, I, and set everybody up for what happened. I mean, how that ship ended up sinking and how things kind of went sideways for them. Um, well, they, uh, the funny thing was it, um, yeah, as it had happened before in the Antarctic that, um, that a similar situation. So they, um, so they, when they get down to, um, their, their goal, which is a place called Basel Bay at the bottom of the Weddell Sea. And that's where they plan to make what Shackleton calls the last great polar journey, the crossing of the Antarctic continent. Um, so they get down there and a summer storm brings uh, springs up. And when the storm clears, they are trapped um, in an ice flow. So for the next um, so the next uh, ten nine months, it is um, the the uh, winds and currents push them north, and they think that they probably are going to break out. the The sea is the ice is going to uh, melt to the point where they can you know get back on with it um, and head north again to resupply. But just as in late October of um, 1915, just as they think that the ice is about to loosen up and free them, disaster strikes. And there's a storm far to the south of them that they can't even see. And next thing they know, they are the uh, ice flows, are, which weigh thousands of tons, are pressing against the ship. And the ship, is, and despite valiant efforts to uh, save the ship, they are sinking. So what's the ship made of? Oh, it's wood. Because yeah. I thought, you know, the Titanic was uh, made of steel and he was one of the people that gave them an opinion about uh, what the uh, captain did right and did wrong about the Titanic. So I kind of assumed it was made of steel back then, but it wasn't. No, not this. Um, actually, the ship was it. Um, the Fram, which was rolled Amundsen, rolled Amundsen ship, um, was actually um, shaped like that, so that when the ice, um, if the ice froze, and in fact they kept their ship down there, it would actually just you know, come up under the ship. But the Endurance had a, which was actually built for polar outings um expeditions in in the arctic actually had a little bit of a grip to it so that's what happened and it caught the back and twisted it and they couldn't save it well what were the keys to shackleton's resilience and how did he teach or show his men how to be resilient you know i think he always um i mean he, of course, you know, these great Shackleton quotes, um, optimism is true moral courage. On the Nimrod expedition, he, in early December, he already knows that it's probably going to be impossible to reach the South Pole. And he writes in his diary, difficulties are just things to overcome after all. Um, one of my favorites is... Um, a man must set himself to a new mark directly. The old one goes to ground. And um, so he he's always, he just has this very positive. He, he loves the poetry of Robert Browning. And he says what he, he sees in Browning is this spontaneous optimism that he's very much um, 
you know, that's that's the core of who he is. He his favorite hymn is "Lead Kindly Light uh, Amid the Encircling Gloom." Lead kindly on. He has a tremendous faith. When um, they abandon endurance, when he calls the group together, um, he very visibly to model the behavior. He tells them, "We're going to have to um, uh, reduce our." Uh, belongings to uh, two pounds a piece. And to demonstrate that, he takes his grandfather's gold watch and throws it on the ice and a handful of gold coins. And then he very visibly takes uh, a Bible that Queen Alexandra has given the uh, expedition and carefully slices out a couple of chapters from the book of Job and the 23rd Psalm. And that's what he, that's, those are the valuable assets that he's taking with him. The Lord Again, is my shepherd, I shall I, not want. I thought it was really interesting that the more famous he became, uh, the more equipped he was at handling that and the more humble he became. And he was like a superhero um, to people and to his men. He was, had much, gave people a lot of time uh, when they wanted to talk to him and ask him questions, I mean, he was a, he was just an extraordinary individual, based on what I've been reading in your book. That's um, uh, one one of the things that people said about Reagan too, about Shackleton. Things it comes up all the time with um, they treated everyone the same. Everyone, you know, whether you're the King of England or uh, a sailor, it, you treated everyone exactly the same with with. Uh, honor and distinction. You write about his various skills at handling crisis, breaking bad news, blustering, uh, bolstering his morale. What could leaders learn from him that would have made them more effective during this pandemic? Well, I think that keeping up morale and, and really, um, you know, those the power of the personal connection um, is so important with Shackleton that at staying in touch with people and, and not in a, you know, you don't have to overthink this at all, but just the, uh, that ab ability to stay connected. Um, and one of the big lessons I've learned from Shackleton, it was, um, was the power of the personal interview. If you want to get something done, go and see that person. Um, and that's a, a great Shackleton lesson. Shackleton came from a very big family dominated by women. I think he had seven sisters, if I'm correct. How, how do you think coming from a large family, especially mostly made up of women, affected him? Well, he actually said, you know, I, there's something of a woman in me, um, interestingly enough. And, and of course, the, the great description of him is a Viking with a mother's heart. <laughs> and we all want to be described in exactly that, those terms. Um, so I and one of the interesting things, you know, here we are talking about 100 years ago, and he very much encouraged his sisters to have great careers, to pursue their interests. And one went on to be a very very um, a nurse who rose up to the top of her profession. Another was a chef who, again, who rose up to the top of her profession. Another was an artist. Um, so he really encouraged his sisters to, to pursue their interests and have great careers. Isn't there a story about him having to go over a mountain to get to the rescue town? Is there, uh, is there a story behind that? And I think you talk about that in the book. Uh, that's my my favorite moment in the expedition. You know, they um, it, 
Shackleton takes five of the men and sails from um, Elephant Island to South Georgia. They land on the wrong side of South Georgia because Shackleton refuses to take the risk of the currents pushing the the ship, uh, the the boat past uh, past South Georgia. They won't be able to get back. So so they land on the wrong side of the island, um, the uninhabited side. And they do what, they take about two weeks to recover from the boat journey. And then Shackleton and Worsley and Crean uh, set out one in the middle of, an, of the night to, uh, to, to do the impossible, which is to cross um, South Georgia. And it, they keep going back, um, they keep make they keep getting lost um, in in this. So they have to backtrack about three times, which must have been heartbreaking. Um, the the uh, mountains, I think about 5,000 feet high. So this is, they ultimately, they cover 30 miles in 36 hours. It is considered virtually impossible. Some of the, the best climbers in the world um, did it a, a number of years ago, and it took them three days to do the same thing. Um, nobody has managed. I, I don't think anyone has managed to do it in 36 hours. But at one point, um, they have been going for over. For, and Shackleton allows Crean and Worsley to sleep. If he had gone to sleep, that would have been the end of every single one of them, not just the men on South Georgia, but the men on back up on Elephant Island too. And the incredible um, discipline. And, and he says, it was the thought of the men back on Elephant Island that kept us going. The, what that must have taken to allow the um, Crean and Worsley to go to sleep, even for just five minutes, to refresh themselves while he stood watch. It's just unbelievable. I also thought it was very interesting, as ambitious as he was and as risk-taking as he was for himself, he would not do that to his men. If he thought he would not put them in any danger or or anything unnecessary that would put them at risk. Am I correct about that? You're absolutely uh, right about that. One of the things, you know, these are young men. A lot of them are in their early 20s and they do goofy things like play around on the ice flows. And and Shackleton comes along and happens to see them. And he he's, uh, you know, irate that they are risking their lives unnecessarily. And that's one of the... Uh, one of the things they would say about him was he loved to be called old cautious. Yeah. He referred to himself as old cautious, not that anyone else ever thought of him exactly that way, but he never took unnecessary risks at all. Uh, you wrote about his apprenticeship. Um, that's how he kind of got into the being seafaring. What did he learn that molded him into the man he became? And do inter- internships hold that same value? Well, I think um, internship, you can see noticing things by being watchful. Um, You can see, you can learn a lot of lessons from being an apprentice. And what he learned was on the first ship he was on was that he really admired the captain of that ship 
who had the apprentices for dinner on Sunday evenings. Again, sort of building that camaraderie. Isn't it interesting that that was such a big deal with him uh, going forward? And the next um, ship he served on, the captain wasn't like that at all. And he noticed that the, the difference in the results that the first captain got versus the second captain. And he very clearly modeled himself on that first captain he had. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. Do you think Shackleton's uh, later love of education, especially reading, contribute to him being a well-rounded leader? And how important is reading to being a leader? Well, I think he, well, um, one of the points you're making there, I think, is he constantly learned. He constantly yeah. thought about his leadership. And he wasn't the leader on the Nimrod expedition that he was on the Endurance. He is constantly learning, constantly fine-tuning, and constantly polishing his leadership skills. And I think that's one of the lessons that we can all lead. You know, we're going to make mistakes. and but we can all, you know, learn and improve as we go along. Well, one of the things I thought was amazing uh, parts of the book was the prediction of wireless phones by one of his crewmen a hundred years in advance. You know, that's interesting. I um, I mentioned earlier that Ord Lees was uh, signed on to be the motor expert and was a complete failure in that role. Hurley, who was the photographer, actually took on that role. But uh, what... Um, Ordley's was interested was in the food supplies and and in he asked comes to Shackleton and says hey can I be in charge of the food supplies and Shackleton's like sure and in that role he was incredibly helpful in eking out their food supply again contributed to everyone's survival but one of the things that goes totally unnoticed almost about Ordley's who's kind of if anybody had left been left behind it probably would have been Ordley's if Shackleton had. And in fact, uh, Ordley's writes in his diaries, I had, you know, I kind of had a chat with Shackleton today. I said, don't, um, I almost missed the ship. And Shackleton's response was how I wish you had. (laughs) But but Ordley's starts this diary as a letter to his wife. And he maintains this um, very intimate, like, gee whiz, I wish I'd paid attention to how the, uh, floors were washed at home you know here I am washing the floors like of all things and so on but he um so he maintains this very um you know particular to the point where he's writing to at one point I've always been interested in the leaders of these polar expeditions but one can't get a very good impression from the book written by the leader himself I hope therefore that this portrait of Sir Ernest will be of some interest to to someone someday. And so here he is making a contribution that's almost unrecognized for a hundred years and that he's very much documenting Shackleton's leadership. And, and that was the first um, one of the diaries that I transcribed. And it's essentially a treatise on Shackleton. It's over 500 pages. And it's really a lot about Shackleton's leadership in these various situations. So the Secretary of Navy, and this will be the last thing, which Secretary of Navy actually gave this book out to naval leaders and uh, was a huge fan of Shackleton? Uh, you know, the book came out 20 years ago, and I'm getting a little rusty. Yeah. I think he was, uh, might have been under 
Clinton. Yeah. And, and he was the secretary of the Navy. And he just gave this book out about Shackleton. So everybody learned what kind of leader he was looking for in the Navy. He felt this guy was the perfect role model. Well, I want to thank you, Margo, for taking the time to speak with us today. And your book is fantastic. And you're a great storyteller. And so I thank you again for sharing the time today with us. And hope to see you all next week when we have our next author. Everybody have a great weekend. Stay safe. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.